Welcome to episode 33 of Spurbs Herbs. Today is an interesting one. I love this. This is an herb I take every day. I think it's an amazing herb, and I think it should be more widely used, except we'll get into some of those exceptions. Uh, but we're going to be talking about Hong Chu or Hong Chu. Monascus purpurus red yeast rice. Very interesting, fascinating herb. Yeah, maybe in Chinese medicine, but definitely in Western medicine. So what do I mean by that? Let's find out. So we are discussing a super important herb, not used much in Chinese medicine, but it is where some of the best-selling drugs of all time came from, Hong Chu or red yeast rice. Now, I say it's not used much in Chinese medicine, Part of the reason for that is it's actually a staple food in some parts of China. So it's not really medicinal, it's food related to a certain extent. And we're going to see some other uses for this, so very interesting. How this herb is used in Chinese medicine, Western herbology, and what does its main constituents do in biomedicine? That's a lot to cover today. We're going to do it. Of course, we have something a little different, our, our something a little different. We are going to have our first mini-biography looking at the doctor who first discovered statin drugs used for lowering cholesterol. That might be a hint of what we're looking at here with this herb. So let's find out. Before we do, I have some questions for you. Have you ever wanted to give herbs to a patient on drugs? Do you have the knowledge and tools to do that effectively and safely? I am finishing up my drug herb webinar series right now, which gives you real-world tools to answer these questions. As of the beginning, the first course will give you an in-depth overview of how drugs, and by the same token, how herbs work on the body. So forget about drug herbs. If you're just interested about herbs, that is a great course to take. The second course in the series focuses on drug-herb interactions and gives you a unique, powerful, real-world tool for uh, assessing them. I call it the, the drug-herb matrix. This knowledge should be in every practitioner's toolkit, so I'm going to give you these first two courses, six hours of CEUs, for 30% off the regular already low price. Just go to www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org slash 32 and get your discount right now. So that's Integrative Medicine Council, C-O-U-N, <coughs> excuse me, C-I-L dot org slash 32. But please hurry. This is a limited time offer, and it's a big offer. So I don't usually give 30% off my, my CEUs, but I think this is important for us. All right, let's get into today's, today's story. So we're going to talk about Akira Endo and the journey through to statin drugs. And we're going to talk about what statin drugs are and why they might be useful for us or not. So born to a rural farming family in Akita, Japan, Akira Endo lived with his extended family. His grandfather was interested in medicine and science and taught little Akira. He became fascinated with mushrooms and molds and since the age of 10 dreamt of being a, a scientist. He finished high school and entered Tohoku University's College of Agriculture, graduated in 1957, and went to work for the pharmaceutical company Sankyo in Tokyo. He worked on a project to aid wines and ciders, and a year later discovered grape parasitic fungus, a grape parasitic fungus, which produced an 
a, a useful enzyme. A year later, it was commercialized. That's a pretty big thing for a young scientist. At this point, Akira wanted to work on cholesterol biosynthesis, so the making of cholesterol in the body, but was too late to start a program working with the Nobel Prize winning Conrad Block in the U.S. Instead, he went to work with Bernhard Horaker, and please excuse me if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, on the synthesis of bacterial cell wall lipopolysaccharides. So lipopolysaccharides are part of the bacterial cell wall, as it says right here. For two years, he lived and worked in New York. When he returned to Tokyo, Sankyo Research Laboratories offered him the opportunity to work on any project he would like. He speculated molds and mushrooms would produce antibiotics that inhibited HMG-CoA reductase. Uh, we're not going to get into the technical name for that. And this inhibition would be lethal to microbes. This was 1968. So... That was when I was born, so that's <laughs> a while ago. Uh, in 1972, after looking at 3,800 strains of fungi, his team found a compound that inhibited the enzyme and prevented cholesterol formation. That's 3,800 strains of fungi. That's a lot of fungi. It was a known substance called citrinin. And while it lowered cholesterol in rats, the research was suspended because it was toxic to the kidneys in rats. And that right now is the truth. Citrinin is now considered a toxic substance that needs to be tested for in red yeast rice. So this is naturally occurring. It is part of our herb hongchu. But when you're actually looking at supplementations, you don't want any citrinin in it. It is toxic to humans. So he discovered it. It lowers cholesterol, but it's not good for humans or rats for that matter. Later that year, they isolated three substances from a blue-green mold, penicillin citrinum. Pen51 was the, the, three sub, it was the, the specific subspecies of penicillin citrinum, Pen51, isolated from a rice sample collected at a grain shop in Kyoto. The most active of these three was called compactin. So again, they're narrowing things down. This is good science. Figure out if you can find something, let's narrow it down. Compactin was structurally very similar to HMG-CoA and competitively inhibits HMG-CoA reductase. So if, stepping ahead, I just want to connect some dots here. HMG-CoA, um, uh, which is, uh, I can't remember the H, but methylglutarate, coenzyme A, competitively inhibits the reductase for this. Now these steps, this HMG-CoA is a step in cholesterol synthesis. HMG-CoA reductase is an enzyme that facilitates the production of this, this changing of HMG-CoA into the next stage of cholesterol formation in the body. So if you can inhibit reductase, if something looks like HMG-CoA, binds with this enzyme and basically prevents the enzyme from continuing. That's what we're talking about here. Very, so it's good to be similar to HMG-CoA in this, in this situation, knock out this HMG-CoA HMG reductase, that stops cholesterol synthesis. And at around the same time as this was discovered, the team of Michael Brown and Joseph Goldstein discovered that patients with familial hypercholesterolemia, so that is genetic uh, hypercholesterol, so too much cholesterol in the blood. So this is a genetic form of that. And it, it is, on the, on the harsher things, people won't live very long at all, like into their 20s or 30s, and before the cholesterol gets so bad, they have heart attacks and they they clog up stuff. It's a horrible, horrible disease at, at its extreme. 
So discovered that patients with this familial hypercholesterolemia either partially or completely lost regulation of HMG-CoA reductase. Aha, we're connecting some dots. So this genetic aspect of this means if you're not regulating HMG-CoA reductase, there's a ton of it, so a lot of cholesterol is being produced. So interesting that at the same time, they're finding compactin, which inhibits this reductase. And we're also finding this reductase is a key component, unregulated uh, reductase is a key component of this genetic condition. One plus one equals two. It's very interesting. And it happens like this in science where we discover things at the same time in different realms that help each other. So very interesting. So further study confirmed compactin's efficacy in both normal and familial hypercholesterolemia cells in vitro, which means in, in test tubes or in petri dishes or whatever it is, but in the, in the lab. And two papers were published in 1976 with this research. So this is interesting. Now they've found that this compactin is very helpful for HMG-CoA reductase to stop it, which can be very helpful in this familial, hy familial hypercholesterolemia, um, but only in the lab. So it hasn't been tested in humans at this point. And that's interesting. It's a good first step, but a lot of things go wrong from this step to the human step. So this is huge. And so 1976, we're given a timeline here. So first 68, now we're into 76. And then the floor fell out below Akira and his team. When compactin was given to rats, there was no change in cholesterol levels. Two years and 6,000 tests were rendered useless. So this is the problem we have when we do science. It's like, okay, it's great. It works in the lab. This is fantastic. Will it work in humans? And of course, before we do humans, we look at animals to see if it works in animals. Totally doesn't work in animals. We're buggered at this point. Two more years of research as to why it didn't work in rats determined that compactin worked to reduce cholesterol for about three to eight hours after a single dose, but then lost its effectiveness. Okay, so that's interesting. So it's working, but it's not staying working. So what is happening in the body to prevent it from working longer? Eventually... They figured out the rat was creating eight to 10 times the amount of HMG-CoA reductase to counteract the compactin's effects. So they're given the compactin, the HMG-CoA reductase is being inhibited and the, and the rat's re body's response to that is, hey, we need this HMG-CoA re reductase. We're gonna, it's called upregulation. We're gonna upregulate this HMG-CoA reductase. We're gonna make more of it. So it totally overcame the compactin. And so overall, they didn't show any difference in cholesterol but there was definitely something major happening in the rat, in the metabolism of all this. This also, because of this, it might also work in other animals. So in early 1976, its effectiveness was demonstrated in hens and then in dogs and monkeys, which is pretty much as close as we get to humans. It was a success. So only rats had this ability to kind of overcome this inhibition of the reductase. And the compactin development project was created, led by our rural farm-raised Akira Endo. And within eight months, came to another research halting problem, though. Large doses of compactin called microcrystalline, caused microcrystalline structures in the liver cells of rats. So microcrystalline structures are, like they explain, little crystals. Like you think of little salt crystals, little salt crystals in the livers of, of rats. And these were deemed to be toxic by the toxicologists who looked at them. So as soon as that happens, 
everyone stops research and goes, what's going on? Can we overcome this? Or is it just dead in the water? There's a lot of steps you have to overcome when doing something like this. Nine more months of research before it was determined these structures were non-toxic cholesterol. So the actual crystals were made of cholesterol and they were considered non-toxic, but they had to do a lot more research to get to that point. But after that, now they could do human case studies and they were performed on a handful of patients with familial, familial hyper, that's not easy to say, familial, familial hypercholesterolemia. So again, you wanna look at extreme cases. This is life-threatening. If a few people volunteer, that's great. We do it in a few people, we'll see the safety, see if it's effective, all those sort of things. So this is a stage, early stage clinical trial. After determining the proper dosing, the first patient had lots of serious side effects, which virtually, virtually disappeared after dropping the dose by 60%. The patient saw an average drop of cholesterol of 30% without severe side effects. That's huge. Think about a 30% drop. Now, we like to think of cholesterol. Anything above 200 is a little bit tough. Some of these people with familial hypercholesterolemia, that's considered high, over 200. Some of these people with familial hypercholesterolemia can be in the three or 400s. So if you're doing a 30% drop, that's a huge drop that can be very life-saving. So that's really effective without severe side effects. These results were published in 1980. So again, we're doing this timeline. However, in August of that same year, Sankyo pulled the plug on the development of compactin. Again, another obstacle to overcome. The reason in doses 100 to 200 times what was being used, dogs were developing lymphoma. So I always like to say everything is poison at high enough doses, even water. If you're not familiar with it, there was a case um, up in Seattle where um, some shock jocks, radio shock jocks were, um, this was in probably the 90s, maybe early 2000s, where they were doing a special, the, the Wii, the Nintendo Wii, Game Council was very popular, and they had a, a contest, hold your Wii for a Wii. So they'd drink a quart of water, and they'd have to hold their Wii, and uh, in another hour, they'd do another quart, and they had to hold their Wii. They kept doing that. Someone died from that, from water poisoning. And so water is toxic at, at a high enough dose. So in this case, uh, 100 to 200 times what was being used, that's a lot. And they halted this. I just, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think let's look into it, but man. So they halted it. Research continued at Merck, however, not, they stopped at Asankyo, but it continued at Merck, and a few universities and a large-scale clinical trial was started by Merck in 1984. Lovastatin was approved by the FDA in 1981. So Lovastatin is the first statin drugs. We call them statin drugs because they all end with a statin at the end. They're all cholesterol drugs. They're the main cholesterol drugs that we use. So there you go. So that is sort of a timeline so this started, the research really started in about 1968, and it, it actually came out in, in the world in 1987, so almost 20 years before it was actually usable. If you're not familiar with lovastatin, we're not going to get, uh, yeah, we'll get into it a little bit, but if you're not familiar with lovastatin and the statin drugs, these are considered um, probably the most effective and safest of all the cholesterol drugs, and the first the first of the cholesterol drugs, so very helpful. There's lots of other classes now. None of them are considered as effective and safe as the statin drugs, and lovastatin was the first. All right, so 
we've talked about all this. Let's talk a little bit about what cholesterol is. Why do we even build it in our bodies? And, and we're just going to briefly do this. But um, so cholesterol is naturally produced by the body and used in cell membranes, hormones, bile acids, and in producing vitamin D. So it's absolutely necessary. We couldn't survive without some cholesterol. It's packaged in complexes for transport around the body with lipids and proteins. And these are called lipoproteins. So it combines the lipids and the proteins, lipoproteins. And these come in various densities usually broken down into low and very low density lipoproteins. Um, these are known as LDLs or VLDLs and are considered the bad cholesterol, if you've ever heard of bad cholesterol versus good cholesterol. These are the things that have been associated with heart attacks and other cardiovascular conditions. And so we want to make sure we don't have too much LDLs and VLDLs in our bodies. And then they also get packaged into something uh, called high-density lipoproteins, HDLs, and these are considered the good cholesterol. These are the ones that go around and kind of scrape off the, that's sort of the, the, the plaques and stuff and makes them um, you know, easier to get rid of. So HDLs are good. We want HD, uh, higher HDLs. We want lower LDLs, VLDLs. There's something in between called IDLs, intermediate-density lipoproteins. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly. Those aren't usually tracked on a, on a typical cholesterol test uh, and uh, are, are I think they're kind of considered relatively neutral, not bad, but not good, you know. So we want higher HDLs, we want lower LDLs and VLDLs. And what these HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, which is what a statin drug is, it's that reductase we were talking about earlier, it inhibits that, just as we were talking about. Um, what they actually do is they raise HDLs a little bit and lower LDLs and VLDLs quite dramatically. And so that's why they're very good at this. It, it actually has both benefits to it. So why is cholesterol an issue in general? Why are we worried about it? We hear it all the time, don't we? You know, we go to the, we're always getting checked when we go to, once you hit a certain age, they're always checking your cholesterol whenever you go to the doctor. So the reason why it's an issue is elevated levels of blood cholesterol have a higher incidence of atherosclerosis, so that is plaque buildup in your, in your, in your blood vessels. As you can imagine, that's not a good thing. And these can lead to a myocardial infarction. That is the technical term for a heart attack. Not just a heart attack. We're not just worried about heart attack. We're also worried about cerebrovascular accidents, which are strokes. So you can be both. Those are, it, it's, it's really bad. Not only that, they're finding this atherosclerosis may play a role um, in, in, in uh, you know, in things like Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease and things along those lines. So um, we really don't want to go down this route of too much cholesterol. And a lot of our foods, now we're going to go a little bit off, but I think it's important. A lot of our foods have cholesterol. We find that cholesterol-laden foods are not, do not go directly to cholesterol in the, in the bloodstream. So that's not a huge issue. Remember, the whole point of this is to package lipids, and that's the issue. So high-fat diets, doesn't matter if there's cholesterol in the foods or not, but high-fat diets, especially saturated fat diets are going to lead to LDLs and VLDLs. And that's what we have to be careful of here. So, and these are going to be used to lower cholesterol. Uh, and, and by the way, um, I just mentioned diet. That is an important factor in, in having too much cholesterol, but the number one factor is not diet. The number one factor of too much cholesterol in the body is actually genetics. Um, there are plenty of people who are very thin and, and still have very high cholesterol levels because of the genetics involved. And there are those who are very large and do not have cholesterol levels 
and they that's because uh, of genetics as well. So genetics is the number one risk factor for for uh, dyslipidemia, which is the current name, which just means um, odd lipids in the blood. So there you go. So this is all reasons why cholesterol is an issue. The incidence of death from cardiovascular disease strongly corresponds with the concentration of plasma cholesterol. So this is very technical language. This is a correspondence. We, we do have mechanisms of action. We do see cause and effect mechanisms of action, but we're still kind of proving the cause and effect, but very high correspondence, so correlation. So um, definitely where we're at. Uh, we want to control our cholesterol to prevent the leading cause of death, which is cardiovascular disease in, in the West. There are a wide variety of cholesterol-lowering drugs, as I mentioned earlier. Most commonly prescribed and among the most effective are the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, also known as statin drugs, because they end with their end of their generic names all end with statin. So um, I've mentioned all that. Of, of course, uh, I said generic names here. Drugs have a generic name, and then they have a brand name. Uh, and so Lovastatin is a generic name. Uh, but then um, that will have a brand name, and I don't know what the specific uh, uh, Avacor or something along those lines might, might be their brand name, and that's what's being marketed it as. But behind it, there's these generic names. And the reason why we do that is generic names don't change. Um, so if you say a generic name, you know which drug you're talking about. But brand names do change, and there might be several companies making the same drug, and they may have very different brand names, but they all have one generic name, so we know what's going on. So statin drugs have two major mechanisms of action. We've already talked about it. So the first one is inhibiting 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutarate. That's that HMG. I remember I told you I couldn't remember the H on that. It's hydroxy. Methylglutarate. Um, Coenzyme A. Reductase, which we've already mentioned. It's an enzyme necessary to produce cholesterol. Due to lower LDL in the blood, so once you start lowering the cholesterol, what happens is the cell starts to produce more LDL receptors on the cell surface because the cell is going like, hey, where's all my cholesterol? I need cholesterol to do my functioning. So what they start to do is they put receptors on the cell surface so that more the cell will be able to get in more cholesterol from the blood. And that actually takes it out of the blood and puts it inside the cell. So where it's not as bad for the body. It's when it's in the blood, these LDL cholesterol, when it's in the blood, that's when we're worried about. That's when plaque formation atherosclerosis can happen. And so if we can bring it inside the cell, that's much better. And so it has two mechanisms. It, it prevents the production of, LD, of LDL and, and cholesterol in the first place. And then it also takes out, it causes changes to take out from the blood what's already in the blood. So there's a lot less in the blood. You're not producing it putting in the blood, plus you're taking it out of the blood. So very, very helpful for that. There are other effects of the statin drugs. Uh, include tending to raise HDL, as I mentioned, the good cholesterol. They stabilize plaques so they don't break off and form an emboli. So an emboli is a little piece of foreign substance in the blood that can block blood vessels. Very, very bad. That's how heart attacks happen. That's how um, one type of stroke happens. And so you want stabilizing these plaques so there's no breakoffs. That's huge. That's a big advantage. They improve cardiac endothelial function. Endothelial is the inner lining of, of the, the blood vessels and the, and the heart. So it improves that. It inhibits platelet thrombus synthesis. In other words, forming clots. 
in the blood. Again, a clot in the blood as it's moving is not a good thing because that can jam up and cause the heart attacks and strokes that we were talking about. So we don't want to create clots in our blood, and so this inhibits that. And it also has some anti-inflammatory effects as well, which can be really important in prevention of, of, heart, of cardiac events. You know, there's research going on that says this is one of the more important risk factors for cardiac events that we've kind of um, missed, but then other research says maybe not. So, um, so very interesting. Sand drugs don't just reduce cholesterol, is my point. They do a lot of other things that may be, are all very beneficial for preventing cardiac events. And all of these, okay, as I just said, are very beneficial for preventing minimizing coronary heart disease, even though the exact mechanisms of these actions are not completely understood. In general, these drugs are considered relatively safe, and the incidence of adverse effects is minimal. Um, I, I love that I read an article, it was probably in one of those, it was a news magazine like, I don't know, like U.S. News and World Report or Time or Newsweek back in the day. It was around 2000 because it was while I was in medical school. Um, give or take a couple years, and there was a quote from a doctor saying the statin drugs are so safe they should be put in the water. And, of course, I totally disagree with that, but here are some side effects. Um, they, there are some serious, if rare, adverse effects, including liver failure, not a good thing, muscle abnormalities, and something called rhabdomyolysis, which is an acute, potentially fatal disease of destruction of skeletal muscle, and so I, I actually think of this as the melting of our muscles. And it can get so severe that it, you can die from it. So rhabdomyolysis is a very serious sort of condition that can happen with the use. It's very rare, but it does happen. These last two effects are more prominent in patients who have renal issues or were taking other drugs with the statin. And taking CoQ10, if you've ever heard of CoQ10, as a supplement is supposed to help prevent rhabdomyolysis. Um, the other form of CoQ10 is ubiquinol. It's the same thing. It's just one's what we call reduced and one's more oxidized. Same supplement. So CoQ10 or ubiquinol. Um, a new study just came out uh, in the last few weeks, and I haven't, I didn't change it on this because I still want more. It's a big study. It's a systematic review. That's high-level evidence um, that says that the CoQ10 does not help with rhabdomyolysis. I still want a little bit more. It said um, probably, I, I think that what they actually said probably doesn't help. So I still want more information. Still recommending CoQ10 for my, my statin drug users and for my red yeast rice users because it's, it's a statin drug in red yeast rice. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. I mean, just a minute. Real quickly before we get into this, let's talk about the Chinese view of cholesterol. Um, it is not specifically recognized in Chinese medicine, hypercholesterol. Neither is hypercholesterolemia or hyperlipoproteinemia or dyslipidemia. Those are all fairly similar. Um, they're not quite synonyms, but very close. But if you have this condition, it can fall under one or more of the following categories. Obesity is referred to as fei pong or fatty fatness. I love Chinese language sometimes, fatty fatness. If associated with heart disease, with chest pain or pressure, it is considered xiongbi or chest impediment. So there's a few things that can do it. But in other words, Chinese medicine doesn't really have the concept of cholesterol, which doesn't surprise you know, me at all. It's a relatively recent one in Western medicine. Um, so there you go. But we do have some things associated with it, some syndromes or conditions associated with it. All right, take a breath. And with that, let's get into our herb of the day, Hongchu or red yeast rice. So... Red yeast rice is rice that has been inoculated and fermented. So it's a fermented rice 
with the yeast, Monascus purpurus. So it's a yeast. It's used as a food and a food dye in addition to a medicinal herb, a medical herb. So a lot of red dye, things with red dye are actually from this, from this red yeast rice. The family is uh, Monascaceae. And the species, as we mentioned, is Monascus purpurus, and went is the is the final thing. Remember that that went actually refers to the biologist who first categorized it. English translation is red yeast or red yeast rice. Hong Chu Hong meaning red, Chu meaning um, uh, yeast or, or, or rice. Um, so red yeast rice, red yeast. Other names names include Hong Chu Mi, um, red rice koji. Red fermented rice, red koji rice, red, well, I have red koji rice in there twice. Anka or Ankak, I, I don't know which language that's from. Minoscus, Jertai, Kang, Colestin, and corn silage mold. I don't know uh, what it is. So it says mold there. It's, it's yeast, but remember, yeast and molds are fairly similar. So we did say this is the uh, Monascaceae uh, family, and that's a family of fungi with about eight genera. So remember, the Monascus is a genera, and then the purpura is the species. Monascaceae uh, is one step up, which is the family. As all fungi, they are eukaryotic, uh, which means they have a true nucleus as opposed to something like a bacteria, which is prokaryotic. Um, they do not have a true nucleus. And the fungi taxonomic kingdom, the whole thing of the fungi includes yeasts, molds, and mushrooms. So those are all considered fungi in general. And um, when we get to the kingdom, remember we have the animals as the top thing uh, versus plants. And then we have kingdoms under that. So we have fungi, we have animals. Uh, there's a few other kingdoms up there as well. Um, totally blanking on any of the others, but there's others. <laughs> all right. The category for this herb is digestive herbs. And remember, when I talk about herbs, I have three main textbooks that I like to compare with. And this one doesn't, is only in one of those three, uh, one of those three textbooks, and that's Chen Chen. Neither Bensky and his team or Brandon Wiseman mentioned this herb at all. So again, obscure herb, um, very interesting, um, definitely used in China, but not necessarily as an herb. So it is sweet, acrid, and warm, and enters the spleen, liver, and large intestine channels. Typical dosage, 6 to 12 grams. Cannot be ground into a powder and applied topically. We're going to have a few, I think we have a few applications that we can do topically. And Chen Chen says it was first mentioned in the Yin Shan Zheng Yao, correct guide to eating and drinking in 1330 CE. So um, not quite, you know, maybe 700 years old at this point. So, um, you know, not, not young, not a new herb, but definitely not one of the oldest herbs either. Good quality is difficult to determine since it primarily is used in the West as an antihyperlipidemic agent. The most important considerations are the amount of monocolins, the chemical name of the statin drugs. We are looking for monocolins. Those are the statin drugs. And citrinin, a potential toxin. So we don't want citrinin in it. Both of these are determined through lab testing and not easily available to the public. So 
Here's my biggest issue with red yeast rice. So there's a great company that I, I, I love to use. It's, it's called Consumer Lab or Consumer Labs, actually, uh, .com. That's what it is. And I pay for a subscription for them. And what they do is they go around and test supplements. And they just, like two weeks ago, finished a new test for red yeast rice. This is now the third test I've seen over the last five or six years from them. Uh, the same high quality is still the same through all three of those. There's that brand which I can mention or you can send me an, an email and I'll be happy to, I'll mention it. It's, it's called HPF Cholestine um, is, is the one that they always think is the best. Love it. Um, everything else, they, they had, I think, you know, uh, half of them failed the test this time around, which hadn't happened before. Most of them are failing these tests because there's very little red yeast rice in these supplements. So I'm, I'm a big fan of red yeast rice supplements for patients rather than going on a statin drug because I'd rather have a whole food supplement than a refined drug in my patients if, if they're open to that. Um, so I love red yeast rice as, as helping someone. Like it's not exactly a Chinese approach. I think it's very helpful. But I'm like, there's only one brand. Every other brand doesn't work. And it's interesting. And by the way, that one brand, if you do a, a search for it, trying to find it, you will find that the FDA sent them a warning letter saying their herb is adulterated with, oh my God, lovastatin. No, lovastatin was discovered from this herb. It's not adulterated with it. The FDA has it wrong. I don't, I, I kind of totally disagree with what the FDA is doing. I, I don't always disagree with the FDA. Um, so, you know, just be aware. That's where I'm at. It's called HPF cholestine, C-H-O-L-E-S-T-E. I think I'm looking up because that's my if I have it my face behind my light so so quality is really important is the bottom line here um, there's a lot of red yeast rice supplements and a lot of really bad red yeast rice supplements so I do not use just any old red yeast rice supplement all right with that bit of controversy, <laughs> let's move into the Chinese medical actions here. Strengthens the spleen and stomach and promotes digestion. Well, that's the that's the traditional category of herb that it's it's herb category that it's in is digestion promoting a digestion um, sort of digestive herbs is the category. So that's all good. Helpful for indigestion and food stagnation. Food stagnation, of course, is a, a nice Chinese uh, uh, diagnosis. It invigorates the blood and eliminates blood stasis. That's interesting. Not a usual thing you see in this in this uh, herb category. It says it's useful to treat blood stasis in postpartum women, traumatic or external injuries, and abdominal pain caused by blood stasis. So those are some of the reasons for it. Again, this is one of its actions. If I'm thinking about moving the blood, I am absolutely not thinking about red yeast rice as an herbal supplement to do so. Um, not a commonly used for this. It's interesting that it does do it, and it's it's helpful for us to know that. But it's not a it's not one of the strongest herbs in this, and it's not one of the first herbs most herbalists. I don't think any herbalist would think of for for doing that in a Chinese context. Western uses, as mentioned earlier, this herb can be used as a food dye. Um, well, and it's not really part of a traditional Western herbology. It is used in a more modern Western herbal approach to treat dyslipidemia or high cholesterol or triglycerides in the blood, as we've been discussing. So it is used um, as a Western herbal for that, but I think it's being used in, in sort of a pharmaceutical style when it comes to doing that. And, and like I said, I do do that in my practice. 
but I'm totally open to the argument as to whether in Chinese herbs we should be doing using herbs in a more pharmaceutical style. Um, you know, and, and, you know, usually with Chinese herbs, we think of, you know, nice big formulas that balance out, not necessarily big, but formulas that balance out the good and the, the yin and the yang, the good and the bad of each individual herb. And we don't usually give herbs singly. There's a few exceptions to that. And, and here, we're kind of doing that. You have high cholesterol, here's the er this herb. And it's kind of a singular thing. I, I do use it. I have seen results in my patients, um, but I'm, I'm, very aware that that's not my usual approach to herbology because I'm more of a traditionalist than that in general. Some commentary on this herb. Chen Chen have a, a short commentary on this herb and says, for centuries, Hong Chu has been used in China as both food and herbal medicine. It has also been used as a coloring agent, agent to prepare fish, fish sauce, fish paste, rice wine, and red soybean curd. In the late 1990s, it was introduced and used in the U.S. as a dietary supplement to promote healthy cholesterol levels. That promote healthy cholesterol levels, that terminology is very much the um, federal drug agency, the FDA's approach to these. We cannot say it helps cholesterol or lowers cholesterol. That's a, a drug claim, and we couldn't do that without getting FDA approval. But we can say promote healthy cholesterol levels. It's a very FDA approach to, to how to say that. Uh, a comparison, one other herb that's in the ballpark of this is called Shen Chu, or Massa Fermentata. And uh, Shen Chu and Red Yeast Rice are both fermented and similar in their actions. Shen Chu promotes digestion and relieves food stagnation as well as protecting the stomach from difficult to digest substances. Hong Chu invigorates the blood and treats blood stasis and is used to treat hyperlipidemia. So that, that's actually a really good sort of point here is that blood movement, that, that invigorating the blood aspect, if we're gonna kind of say cholesterol is something in Chinese medicine, one of the, the, the most likely Chinese diagnosis is going to be a blood stagnation or blood stasis sort of scenario. And so the fact that it moves blood is, I think, really important with Hong Chu in terms of the cholesterol lowering that we're, we've been talking about for most of this, this, uh, this presentation. Combinations, there are a couple combinations of this herb uh, discussed in Chen Chen. With Shan Jia or Kataji fructus, this is hawthornberry. Again, very good for heart conditions. So hawthornberry is a, is a good one. Maya Hordae germinatus fructus. That is um, germinated, I believe, I always get it mixed up. I think it's uh, germinated wheat. There's another one that's germinated rye, but it's in, they're both in the same category, very similar. So I could get them mixed up. Um, and those are good for indigestion, all three of those. So, uh, and then it could also be used with Baiju, Attractor Lotus Macrocephalae rhizoma. That's Attractor Lotus. And Dong Shen, Codonopsis radix. The common name is Codonopsis for that. For food stagnation due to spleen deficiency, both Baiju and Dong Shen are, are uh, tonify spleen, so it can help in that case if there's deficiency of the spleen happening. Remember, I've, I've mentioned in previous uh, spurbs herbs that uh, the spleen is sort of the main digestive herb in Chinese medicine. Of course, the spleen has nothing to do with digestion in Western medicine, but right below the spleen is the pancreas, and when you look at some of the descriptions in Chinese literature about the spleen, 
um, there's one in particular that says the tail of the spleen, and, and the spleen is, a, is sort of an odd-shaped balloon. There's no tail. And so what they're really talking about right below it is this triangular um, pancreas. So I think the spleen in Chinese medicine is the same as the spleen and pancreas in Western medicine. In that context, it's very helpful for digestion, a very big part of digestion. All right, and there are also several combinations for use in blood stasis. However, like I said, it's not a commonly used herb for these conditions in general. Contents of this herb. So it contains uh, monocytin, uh, monocolin K and KA, also known as lovastatin or mavenolin. So uh, there's that lovastatin drug that we've been talking about. It came from this herb. There are other monoclins, including J, L, M, and X. Uh, one other, I think, was developed into a statin drug as well. So there's more than one statin drug that was developed from red yeast rice. There's starch, fatty acids, um, phytosterols or, or plant sterols, including bidacetosterol, which we're going to mention in just a min minute, and uh, compesterol, as well as isoflavones and niacin. Niacin is an interesting one to have in this herb because niacin at high doses is also an anti-cholesterol drug. And so that's a very interesting fact that it's part of this, this herb as well. Here's that beta-cystosterol that I was mentioning is a plant sterol that may help heart disease and high cholesterol as well as benign prostatic hyperplasia. So just the beta-cystosterol alone has some benefits as well. So you can start to see why I'd rather have my patient on this herb or an extract of this herb rather than lobostatin because lobostatin doesn't have any of this other stuff. But there's a lot of things working similarly in red yeast rice that doesn't happen to lovastatin. And I think whole foods in general are gonna be safer, have fewer side effects, and are gonna be, um, can be very effective in doing things. So I, I like this herb for that reason. Uh, campesterol uh, may also help with some of these conditions as well. High doses of niacin, as I mentioned, can aid in hypercholesterolemia. Um, niacin is particularly great, so I, I said statin drugs, lower LDL and slightly raise HDL. So it's, it's got two benefits here. Niacin slightly, very slightly lowers LDL, but greatly it's the best drug for raising HDL. And so that's the, if you want to raise HDL, niacin is the, is the way to go with it. So that can be very helpful for that. So really good combination there. So Let's talk about the science. The main claim for red rice, in case you haven't <laughs> gotten it, is it reduces cholesterol. According to Chen and Chen, most medical journals attribute the hypolipidemic effect of Hongchu to one single component, lovastatin. This explanation, however, is not sufficient nor entirely accurate. The therapeutic dose of Hongchu delivers approximately 7.2 milligrams of lovastatin. While the synthetic drug lovastatin contains from 10 to 40 milligrams of lovastatin. Yet, despite the lower dose of the supposed active component, the hypolipidemic effects of Hongchu are much greater than the synthetic drug lovastatin. Thus, it is clear that lovastatin is not the only active ingredient, and more research needs to be done on Hongchu as an herbal medicine, not just on lovastatin as a single compound. So if you're not familiar with um, Chen and Chen, John Chen, I, I, I don't know, um, it's his brother and sister, I don't know what the, the sister, I know she's a great herbalist, but I don't know what her background is, but John Chen is a pharmacist, so this is his background, his pharmacy. 
and he's saying there's something else going on here as well. So it's kind of echoing what I've been saying all along in this presentation. Chenzhen also included a clinical study of 502 patients, so fairly well-powered, with hyperlipidemia in a randomized single-blinded trial. So not top-end trial. We usually want double-blinded trial. Very easy to do with herbs, so I don't know why it was single-blinded. But at least it was randomized. That's important. So um, I'm just saying, get a little bit of a grain of salt. So in this case, 600 milligrams of Hongchu were given twice a day. After eight weeks, there was a 22.7% reduction in total cholesterol, 30.9% reduction in LDL cholesterol, 34.1% decrease in triglycerides, and a 19.9% increase in HDL cholesterol. We want that increase in cholesterol, remember, so in HDL cholesterol. So that's really good. So that's great. Um, the study, I, I, there was a study years ago that I, I, looked, I looked at, and it said 2,400 milligrams of extract is what you want to do. Um, so that's usually where I go. Again, you have to look at extraction ratios, and it's difficult to figure out, you know, where you're at. But with that HPF cholesterol that I mentioned, uh, I do do four capsules, which is 2,400 milligrams. So there you go. And I get good results. Now let's talk about some drug interactions that we might need to be worried about. Several case reports highlight potential interactions with warfarin causing an increase in INR. INR is a measurement of uh, the uh, blood um, coagulation, you know, how, how easy it is for the blood to clot. And when you're taking warfarin, that's really important. You want to make that longer so that it doesn't clot as much. That's the whole point of taking warfarin, which is an anticoagulation drug. And so if it, you know, if you interact, if these are interacting and causing an even bigger increase of INR, that can be an issue because if you increase INR too much, you go from preventing a, clot, a clotting disease from happening to causing hemorrhagic disease to happen. You always want it kind of in a narrow band. So we need to be careful of using this with warfarin. Warfarin is one of those drugs, if you take my drug herb interaction courses, I do not recommend doing warfarin with herbs in general. Um, so again, probably should avoid it. And then the other interaction we should be worried about here is monoclonals, since monoclonals are generally strong interactors with CYP3A4, cyclone P450-3A4, that's one of the major targets for drug herb interactions. If something does something in cytochrome P450 subtype 3A4, it's at much greater risk for a drug herb interaction. So these are generally strong interactors with that 3A4. It is probable this herb may have some interactions with drugs that use 3A4, and about anywhere from about 40 to 60% of drugs require 3A4 for some form of their metabolism in the body. So we do need to be careful about this when combined with, with other drugs. Finally, let's talk about some concerns about this drug in general. It may be hard to digest in those with spleen or stomach chi deficiency and dampness leading to diarrhea or in those with food stagnation or blood stasis. So, um, you know, food stagnation or blood stasis, that's what this herb helps with. So I, I don't know if that's a huge concern. You're supposed to take it in those cases to help it, but we do need to realize it may be difficult to digest in that context. Again, in that case, in Chinese medicine, we combine it with herbs that help that digestion. Shouldn't be used in excess or exterior conditions. It is definitely an interior type herb. Use with caution in pregnancy as it may stimulate uterine contractions. So remember, 
we said it, it's often used um, for stasis postpartum. So use it after pregnancy, after birth, not before, you know, not during pregnancy. And it's contraindicated in patients with active liver disease. Generally, if you're given this, uh, you know, lovastatin or one of the statin drugs in Western medicine, they're going to test your, your liver enzymes just to make sure your liver is doing okay and monitor them just to be on the safe side. So definitely want to be careful. Um, a contraindicated, sure, um, if there is active liver disease, absolutely. But you do want to be careful just in general with livers with this. So. In summary, that was our very different and interesting herb of the day. Feng Chu is not a commonly used Chinese herb. However, it can be an important herb for treating dyslipidemia. I do add CoQ10 or ubiquinol when using this herb, though the latest evidence is a little questionable on that. As I mentioned earlier, it is a great alternative to placing a patient on, life, on a lifelong statin or other cholesterol-lowering drug. So remember, Statins are considered what, what are known as a, a lifestyle drug. And what that means is it becomes part of your lifestyle. So once a patient is prescribed a statin drug, they're almost always going to be prescribed a statin drug for the rest of their life uh, because no one really wants you to come off and then have high cholesterol levels. And, and it's considered relatively safe, so why not just be on it forever? That's why it's one of the highest selling drugs in the United States. Um, the last thing I looked at was I think two, maybe three, Three statin drugs were in the top 10 drugs sold in the United States. Um, so very, 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 very common drug prescribed in the, in the United States. And the reason for that is because once you're on it, you never come off of it. So let's, as herbalists, let's try and see if we can use something as an alternative and if, see if it's effective in our patients so they don't have to be on a drug for the rest of their life. So that's basically Reggie's Rice Hongchu in a can. So... What about our next episode? In our next episode, we will look at a very interesting formula, Baihe Gujintang, or lily bulb decoction to preserve the metal. This is an interesting tonification formula for the lungs and introduces an interesting herb, lily bulb, which is used in several formulas in some of the oldest formula books in Chinese medicine. This looks like it's going to be an absolutely fascinating look at an important, if a little obscure, herbal formula family Please join us in two weeks for this herbal formula and, of course, something a little different. Thank you very much for, for being there. If you like this podcast, could you do us a big favor? Could you give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app? We would really appreciate it. And thank you very much for considering it. And don't forget, you can get this, uh, this podcast and 30% off our Drug Herb Series CUs and NCCOM PDAs, um, so CUs, Continuing Education Units, National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine and Professional Development Activities at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L. And if you want that 30% off our drug herb, the first two courses in that drug herb series, put a slash 32 on that, and you'll be able to do that. And of course, you can always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com or our website www.spurbsherbs.com. Happy to answer any questions you may have uh, in the future or what have you. Just give me an email. And as usual, I have my bibliography. Spurbs Herbs. 
the proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins. Rogers. Campbell. 